Well, this morning begins Advent, four weeks thinking about Advent, which means coming or arrival. And so leading up to Christmas, we're going to spend some time in the first two chapters of the gospel according to Luke. And as we look at the beginning of any of the gospels, something we've got to keep in mind is what historians call the silent years. So God had not spoken since the prophet Malachi, 400 years of silence. And so the people of God are asking, when will God speak? When will God return to deliver his people? The psalmist would pray, how long, O Lord? And in the years prior to the coming of Jesus, there was this great sense of angst among God's people, a great sense of weariness, and yet expectation. And so Luke chapters 1 and 2, we're going to see the dawning of the age of fulfillment, what they were waiting for. And these chapters, just like really all the Gospels, are filled with a wealth of quotations and allusions and echoes to the Old Testament. Luke, his mind is steeped in the Old Testament. And so we're going to see some of that in the next four weeks. We'll see that the story of Jesus that is unfolding before us is really the continuation and the fulfillment of the story of Israel. So together, let's look at Luke chapter 1, and we're going to read a good chunk here. Let's read verses 5 to 38. Luke chapter 1, verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent." And unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. 
And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. It's a long passage that really, though, just moves through two miraculous birth narratives. The birth of the messenger and then the birth of the Messiah. So first, let's consider the birth of the messenger. We see this in verses 5 to 25. And this all takes place in the time, as we read here, of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the king, but he wasn't the true king. He was more of like a puppet king. He wasn't the true Jewish king. Things were not yet how they were supposed to be. They were still waiting for the true Davidic king. But here we have this old couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth, and they're waiting faithfully. They are waiting patiently. Look there at verse 6. They were both righteous before God and walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Zechariah and Elizabeth were godly and they were known as godly. Oh, to have this kind of legacy. I wonder what will you be described as when you go? Will it be faithful to the Lord? Walked blamelessly in all his ways? A couple of weeks ago over Thanksgiving, uh, my family and I went over to a cemetery to see my Meemaw's graveside and my kids were running around and we were just looking at headstones and seeing what was said. You know, you usually have what, five, six, eight, ten words. And so what will you be remembered by? My Aunt Diana was with us and talked about the story of this man who uh, was in the last name was Odd. And he was always tired of getting made fun of, of his last name being Odd. And he became a lawyer and he lived. And later in his life, he decided, you know what, I'm not even going to put my name on the tombstone. I'm so tired of it. I'm just going to put, here lies an honest lawyer. And so everybody would walk by and say, that's odd. <laughs> if we were to walk by Zechariah and Elizabeth's, I wonder what it would say. 
They could have rightly said righteous and faithful. Walked blamelessly. I wonder what kind of legacy are you building? Are you known for your walk with God? We can learn from their example. Things aren't how it's supposed to be yet. Here they are. And they're commended for their character. They're commended for their commitment to God. And that doesn't mean everything went well for them, right? They were walking blamelessly, above reproach, keeping God's commands. Does that mean things go all the way we want them to go? Of course not. Look at verse 7. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. We tend to equate material blessing, material prosperity with God's blessing. And that's not biblical. We tend to think that if we're faithful, God will bless us with everything we want. And that is the prosperity gospel, which is no gospel at all. Being righteous, walking blamelessly doesn't mean we will be exempt from heartache and suffering and disappointment. Here we have two that serve God faithfully, even though life didn't go as they had planned. Will you? Will he be enough when you don't get what you want in this life? Will he mean more than your dreams, your dream family, your dream spouse, your dream house, your dream car, your dream job? Zechariah and Elizabeth, he was enough. They both loved the Lord, but it was not his will that they have children. Early on, it was probably they were asked, hey, when are you going to have kids? Years would pass, and it would change to, hey, we're, we're praying for you. Years would pass, and eventually there was a conclusion it wasn't going to happen. Disappointments can make us bitter or better, and they chose the latter. They continued to serve God, even through disappointment. They knew that God loved them. They loved God, and they were trusting that he was working all things together for their good, even if it wasn't what they would have written up for themselves. It says, by this point, they were advanced in years. It's actually a quotation from Genesis chapter 18, verse 11. The story of Abraham and Sarah. Genesis 18, 11 says this. <clears throat> now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. You remember the story, right? The promise was to a child, but Sarah was too advanced in years. God tends to cause miraculous births with older, barren women when he's up to something big. Luke tells us that Zechariah was a priest. He was the priest of the division of Abijah. There were 24 division of priests, and they would rotate serving in the temple. And as providence would have it, it's Zechariah's turn to go in and burn incense during the sacrifice. Luke says he was chosen by Lot. Lot is kind of like us casting, throwing dice. And God tends to have a way of controlling these things. Remember Jonah? Jonah chapter 1, the Lot landed on Jonah. The lot lands on Zechariah because as one of my favorite Proverbs says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Proverbs 16.33. And this was a privilege for Zechariah. It was actually a very rare privilege. There were 18,000 priests at this time. And so this is a once-in-a-lifetime thing. This is Zechariah's big day. And he would burn the incense, which were symbolic of the prayers of the people, at the altar of the incense, which stood in the center of the holy place. And so he goes in and he, he's going to burn incense probably again once in a lifetime. And if that wasn't intense enough, an angel shows up. And in the Bible, when angels show up, it's not cute. 
There are no warm, warm fuzzies. It's almost always a response of two words, fear not. It's a terrifying thing to experience. And the angel, Gabriel, assures Zechariah that his prayer has been heard. I wonder what prayer that was. Well, as we learn in the very next verse, it's a prayer for a son. But in all honesty, he probably hadn't prayed for that in years. They were advanced in years. They had probably long given up on that. As they say, he may not come when you call, but he's always on time. Simultaneously, though, Zechariah had been praying for the redemption of his people, for the salvation of Israel. And so both his longing for a son and his longing for the forgiveness and liberation of his people are coming true. The name Zechariah means Yahweh remembers. And God hears his prayer. This is a work of God. So much so, God gets to name the baby, and his name will be John. Hebrew is Yohanan, which means God has been gracious. God remembers and God has been gracious. And this child, John, he wouldn't drink any strong drink. He would be an ascetic, much like the Nazarite vows we read about in number six. And he was a wild man. Mark tells us he wore camel's hair. He ate locusts and honey. Luke says he'll be filled with the Spirit, among other things, showing that he was a distinct human person before birth. And his parents would have joy and gladness, but not only them. Luke says, many will rejoice at his birth. This is not just the joy and gladness for an old barren couple. This is joy and gladness for all of humanity. That's what Advent is about. It's about joy. Not just the joy of family or food or friends, but a deeper joy. A joy that outlasts all of those smaller joys. A joy that transcends our circumstances. Joy in God who makes and keeps his promises. And this messenger, John, part of his ministry will be turning many of the children of Israel to the Lord. This word for turn is one of Luke's favorite words for conversion. Many will be converted. He uses it in Luke and in Acts. In Acts 14, 15, we read that Paul and Barnabas priests said that the pagans should turn, there's that word, from vain things to a living God. Jesus in Acts says to Saul, you will be used to turn the Gentiles from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they might receive the forgiveness of sins. John would be used by God to see many people saved, many people come to the Lord. And Luke tells us he will go before the Lord and he will go in the spirit and power of Elijah to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. The prophet spoke that Elijah would come. So all God's people knew that when Elijah shows up, God's at work. In fact, just to pick on probably the favorite one, let me read from the book of Malachi. Again, this is the last book before those 400 years of silence. And notice what we read in Malachi 3, verse 1. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And so there's this prophecy that before the Lord returns to his temple to clean house, to save and to judge, there will be a messenger. In fact, Malachi is not finished. If we look at Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, we read this. Behold, these are the last verses of the Old Testament. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. 
And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Pay attention to the high Christology here. In the book of Malachi, it's a prophecy that this messenger would come and make the way for God to come. And Luke and Mark and Matthew show that the fulfillment of that prophecy is in Jesus' coming. The long-awaited return of God to his people is fulfilled in the coming of this Christ child. John is the Elijah-like messenger sent to prepare the way, prepare the way of the Lord. Here's how Matthew puts it in Matthew chapter 11. He says, all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah to come. He is the last of the prophets. The age of fulfillment is here. A little bit later in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 17, Jesus says this, I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. The appearance of the messenger signals the dawn of the new era foretold by the prophets. God is coming back. John is this much anticipated messenger rolling out the red carpet. And Luke 1 also, verse 16, says that his ministry will consist not only of seeing people converted, a fruit of that conversion will be that he will see the turning of the hearts of the fathers to the children, just like Malachi prophesied. Isn't that interesting? Of all the things that you would say, I don't know if we would put that. When the Lord returns, fathers will begin to engage their children. Their hearts will be turned to their children. Fathers and sons reconciled. Families would be changed. Brothers and sisters, don't negate the fulfillment of this prophecy. Where God is at work, men are lovingly leading their families. He also says that the disobedient will turn to the wisdom of the just. That is believers. Believers are wise and unbelievers will adopt the way of thinking of the righteous. And of course, wisdom in scripture is the fear of the Lord. It's the knowledge of God. And so families will be changed. Minds will be changed. Lives will be changed. And John comes and as we know, he speaks the truth to power and it costs him. He ends up decapitated. But he was a pretty amazing man, wasn't he? Did you know that you are even more amazing than John? According to Jesus, that's what he says in Luke chapter 7. If you got your finger in Luke 1, flip over to chapter 7, verse 24. Luke 7, verse 24. When John's messengers had gone... Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. 
This is he of whom it is written. And he quotes Malachi that we just read. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Among those born of women. That about covers everybody, right? I don't think there are exceptions to that. None is greater. Yet, Jesus says, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So if you are the least in the kingdom, someone in here is the least. Don't raise hands. One of you is the least in the kingdom in this room. And did you know you are greater than the greatest prophet who ever lived? Because you get to see and you get to experience the kingdom, the thing that John only anticipated and John only pointed forward to. Here you get to experience its glory and its power. We get to be a part of what he could only point forward to. We learn from him and we should imitate his posture. He prepared the way and he got out of the way of the one of whom he wasn't even worthy to tie his sandals. May his motto be our motto. He must increase we must decrease. Look back at Luke chapter 1. Look at verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man. My wife is advanced in years. How am I going to know? You need more proof than a majestic angel speaking to you? I appreciate the Bible's realism here. Zechariah is not presented to some hero of the faith. He's not so sure, and so Gabriel makes him unable to speak. Or here, as we'll learn in verse 62, the word for mute can be both deaf and mute. Look at verse 21. It says, And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. And normally it'd be fairly quick. He would come in, he would burn the incense, he would say a fairly brief prayer, and he would come out back to the people and he would pronounce the ironic blessing over the people. But he comes out, he had to learn sign language really quickly. And I would love to just see what he told them, but somehow they gathered that he had seen a vision. And then he goes home. And I would love to know how that conversation went, to be on fly on the wall there. Zechariah's like, honey, I was praying for you. How was your big day? And he's just like, He can't say anything. He just, he just grabs her hand. He goes to the bedroom. God's got promises to fulfill. Look at verse 26. Look at verse 24. <laughs> After these days, his wife, Elizabeth, conceived, advanced in years, and for five months, she keeps herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. And this is nothing new, friends, again. Think about the history of how God has dealt with and through barren women. Genesis 21 tells of the aged Sarah having Isaac. Genesis 25 tells of Rebecca con conceiving after being childless. We have the language here actually is a, an allusion to Genesis 30 with, with Rachel. Genesis 30, verse 23 says this, she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. God's been the business 
of doing what we wouldn't think is normal, and he takes away Elizabeth's reproach, but he's doing so much more than that. He's taking away the reproach of his people. Through this messenger, God's saving purposes are being advanced. That's the birth of the messenger. Then the story turns now to the Messiah in verses 26 to 38. Look at verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. So now Gabriel is sent up to Nazareth, which was this backwater town with a bad reputation, kind of like Cross Plains. <laughs> Sorry. As a Eula boy, I have to say that. I would have said Jim Ned, but Jim Ned has outgrown us in recent years, so that wouldn't mean much. Remember what Nathaniel said? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? It was this northern province in Galilee. It was far from Jerusalem and Judea. And he sent there, and he sent to this virgin, this virgin who was betrothed to a man named Joseph. And betrothal was something common in the day. Jewish girls, usually around the age of 12, would be betrothed, legally pledged in marriage. It was stronger than our engagement and usually married a year after. And Luke tells us this man, Joseph, was of the house of David. This is one of the most significant details of our passage. I hope you know why. We'll spend more time in weeks to come showing why. But remember, in God's covenant with David back in 2 Samuel 7, God had promised David a son who would have a kingdom that would last forever. A son of David who would bring, out, bring about an eternal kingdom. Jesus is this Davidic king. This is why the New Testament makes such a big deal out of the fact that Jesus is the son of David. In many ways, this is what Christmas is about, the fulfillment of the promises to David. This is why all the gospel writers make a big deal out of it. We see it here in our verse in Luke, but look at Luke 132. It says it again. He'll be great. He'll be called son of the most high, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. Flip over a page to chapter 2, verse 4. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. If Joseph is not of the house of David, this is all a house of cards about to go down. But it's not. Look over at chapter 3, verse 23, and here we have the genealogy. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed of Joseph, the son of Heli. And then if you skip over down to verse 31... The son of Malaya, the son of Manah, the son of Mathatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David. In Jesus, God is keeping his promises. He is the promise keeper and the promise maker. Look at Luke chapter 1, verse 30. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. This young Jewish girl finds favor with God Almighty. This word for favor here is a word in Greek called charis. It's usually translated grace. Mary finds grace with God. By the way, Mary is the recipient of grace. 
not the dispenser of grace. And Mary is troubled by all this. She probably considers herself too insignificant. Me? A part of God's plan? Probably thought her life was too small for God to notice. wonder if you've believed that lie. The plan of redemption is being fulfilled through the wombs of two obscure but faithful women, two miraculous pregnancies. And here we have the miracle of the virgin birth. We speak of the birth, but really in conception, the miracle. It was a creative act of God by the Spirit. And this is one of the things that sets Jesus apart. He did not have a sinful human nature. He was born of a virgin. I mentioned a couple weeks ago, Larry King being asked if he could just pick one person to interview, who would it be? And he said, Jesus. And they said, well, what question would you want to ask Jesus? And he said, I would ask if he was really born of a virgin. Because the answer to that question changes everything. And he was right. And this, too, is in fulfillment of the prophet Isaiah. We read in Isaiah 7, 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God is fulfilling his promises through formerly empty wombs. Theologically, Karl Barth says that the virgin birth is God's judgment on human nature because our race needs a redeemer that our race cannot produce. God performs the miracle of virgin conception. And sadly, there are many that deny this truth. These and other miracles, you would be shocked by the amount of unbelief I read this week in the name of New Testament scholarship. My, my, the most humorous was someone that said that Zechariah didn't actually see an angel and was, you know, struck with being mute and silent. He actually had a stroke. That's what happened. But we believe in miracles. We believe in God becoming a man. We believe in the resurrection from the dead. If God can raise the dead, he can pull off a virgin birth. Gabriel tells Mary that his name will be Jesus from the Hebrew Yeshua. Actually, a very common name in first century Jerusalem. And it means Yahweh saves. Yahweh remembers. Yahweh gives grace. Yahweh saves. Matthew one twenty one. you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Through this baby, God is saving his people. Gabriel also says the Lord will give him the throne of his father David, which again points to those promises of the Davidic covenants. And he says, this king, this son of David, will reign over the house of Jacob, that is his people, forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no ends. Yet another quotation from the prophet Isaiah, this time in chapter 9, verse 7. We've already spoke about it in our reading of the increase of his government and of peace. There will be no ends. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, God is bringing about his long-awaited kingdom through a cradle and then a cross. Here at last, the promised Deliverer of Israel has come, God with us, Emmanuel. I wonder this morning, are you living for his kingdom, for this kingdom, or your own? The costly kingdom of Christ or the comfortable kingdom of your own convenience? Of one, there will be no ends. Of another, there will be a certain end sooner than later. We need to have the long view as Christians. We can be so short-sighted, can't we? Oh, Lord, give us the long view. Help us to live for this kingdom here that Gabriel says will not end. 
too many of us are living our lives as if we had a measly 80 or 90 years. But that is just the beginning, right? That's not a period for us. Death is a comma. That's when life begins. Oh, God, give us the grace to truly live for eternity. Look at verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. She asks, how is this going to happen? It's a great question. Here, she's not questioning God. She's asking for, for more information. She's not saying, can God do this? She's saying, how will God do this? It, it lacks the unbelief that Zechariah's question contained. So here we have this 12-year-old village girl being more responsive to God than the aged Jerusalem priests. That's what God loves to do. He loves to notice the unnoticed. He loves to do the improbable, if not impossible, to fulfill his purposes. You find yourself a nobody in here this morning? Good news, you are ripe to be used by God in major ways. And the triune God will be at work. Did you notice here you have the spirit of God coming upon the power of the most high. So you have the spirit and the father will overshadow her. And then the child, the son of God, will be called holy. The triune God working out his plan of redemption from the father by the spirit through the Son. This is what Advent is about, the incarnation, God becoming a man for us and for our salvation. And this language here of the Spirit of God coming and overshadowing reminds us of the first verses of the Bible, um, reminds us of creation. Genesis 1-2, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. What we have here in Luke 1 is new creation. That's why Matthew 1.1 starts with Biblos Geneseos, the book of Genesis, the dawn of the age of fulfillment. The kingdom is coming, the fulfillment of God's promises. Then look at verse 36. And behold, your relative in her old age has conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. For nothing will be impossible with God. And here we have another quotation of the Abraham and Sarah story. Genesis 18, 14, where Sarah laughs and the Lord says, Is anything too hard for the Lord? God's able to do anything. Theologically, we call this his omnipotence. He is all-powerful. As Jesus would say later in this very gospel, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Or one of my favorites is Jeremiah chapter 32. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? And don't you love Mary's response? Like the prophet Isaiah, here I am, send me. Like Esther, if I perish, I perish. Like Ruth, my people will be your people. Your God will be my God. Like Jesus, not my will, but yours. Like Job, though he slay me, I will yet hope in you. This is how faithful people of God respond to his plan and to his purpose. Even when we don't have the details and even when we feel inadequate. We say, here I am. We as Protestants sometimes spend too much time talking about what we don't believe about Mary, and we need to do that at times, but let's not miss the example of faith we have here. She is not the object of faith, but she is a great example of faith here. Just think about the high stakes for her, young, female. She faces public shame, 
Joseph would have the right to leave her. She might wear that scarlet letter all her days. She doesn't know, but she trusts that God's plan is best. Regardless of what it costs her, she says, I am the servant of the Lord. The Greek is a little bit stronger. It's more like bond servant. She knows her life is not her own. She sees herself as owned by the Lord. She exists for him. As 2 Corinthians 5, 9 puts it, whatever our circumstance, her aim is to please the Lord. Can you be called a bond servant of the Lord? Is your life his? Are you about his agenda or just about your own? We can learn here from Mary, this faithful young woman who says, let it be according to your word. Let it be whatever you say, Lord. There's this surrender here. There's this open hands. There's this posture of receptivity. God, if you say it, I'm going. A submissiveness that should characterize us all. She's a model disciple, one who faithfully follows the Lord. A shiny example of faith in God and a willingness to serve him. Because, brothers and sisters, He is worthy.